Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to listen to a message recorded at Strasburg Community Church. We hope this message by Senior Pastor Steve Yon draws you into a deeper knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is and that it cultivates a better relationship with Him. Now, let's get on to this week's message. Back when I was a kid, we, uh, we took a vacation to Southern California. I grew up in Central California, and and we went down south, and I, I'm not sure exactly what it was for. We were probably down going to Disneyland there. But um, while we were there, we heard that over in Thousand Oaks, just outside of L.A., the Dallas Cowboys were holding their training camp. Yeah. Now, I grew up, I grew up as a Vikings fan and a household of Cowboys fans. But still, I had never seen, I'd never seen an NFL player before, so I was so excited. And we go out there, and it was awesome. It was awesome. They, were, they had their training camp, and they were running all their drills and everything, and they got to meet all the players. This is a picture of, of I'm, I'm the, the dude in little red and white shirt there, walking along with Roger Staubach. Huh? Roger Staubach? Yeah, yeah. I'm walking with Roger Staubach, getting his autographs there. It was incredible. Now, what were they doing in California? Well, they had to get away. They could have done it over in, in Dallas, but they knew if they were going to be prepared for that season, they had to get away so that they could focus on their training. Because it was going to be a tough season. It's always a tough season. So you, they pulled themselves away, and their life was all about preparing themselves for the battle that was ahead of them. And Paul, as he's talking with Timothy, he says, you know what, Timothy, there is a battle ahead of you. You are going to be in a fight, a fight for truth, a fight for righteousness. And you know what you need to do to prepare? You need to train. You need to train so that you're ready when the battle comes, when the game starts, that you are ready to face whatever comes your way. Now, we can't expect to live holy lives just because we're Christians. I mean, yeah, we are put in the state of holiness, but we also have to strive for righteousness. Now, we do have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is fantastic. The Holy Spirit is a great coach. The Holy Spirit is a great teammate. But he's not going to do all the work for us. Because if God did all the work for us, then we would have no free will. We have no free will, then we're just Stepford Christians. You were just little robots. But God gave us a free will so that we could choose to either follow him or we could choose in our lives to reject him and do our own thing. Now, for us to have that willpower as Christians to choose to follow him and not just slip back into our own sinful ways, so we got the strength to say no to the flesh, no to the enemy. Remember the adversary we talked about last week? For us to have that strength, we need to prepare now. We need to be in constant training. And again, that's what our passage looks at this week. Turn to uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, please. And 1 Timothy 4, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. Now again, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he's telling them, Remember, the whole context here is the gospel and protecting the purity, the simplicity of the gospel. Don't add anything to the gospel. But there are all these teachers who were 
who are coming in and bringing in their own teaching, bringing in all these myths and genealogies and things like that. And he's saying you've got to stand up against them. And to be able to do that, you need to make sure that you are trained. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, again, this, these things is referring to everything he's talked about up until now. That living the godly, uh, the godly life, protecting the gospel. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So, Timothy has a calling, a calling, a mission that's been given to him, and that is to teach the gospel, teach the true gospel. Now, that's a calling that's not just exclusive to him. That's, a, that's the, the, the calling that we all have. We are all called to be ambassadors. And whether we are teaching in a formal setting, the way that Timothy was, or we just teach it by the way that we live our lives and the opportunities that we take to let other people know about Christ, we all have that calling to teach that true gospel. Now, Timothy had an advantage. And his advantage is that he was raised up in the truth. He knew the truth from the time he was just a little pup. And through his whole life, he continued to be nourished with the truth. That word that we find in verse uh, uh, 6, being trained in the words of the faith, that word trained there, it really has that sense of being nourished, of being brought up. You put good stuff in if you're going to have a healthy body. And he had been constantly fed by his family, fed by the people around him so that he was healthy spiritually. Again, this is in contrast to the false teachers. He says, the false teachers, what were they following after? So they're following after irreverent, profane things, silly things. I mean, this is really, this is pretty derogatory language that he was using, that Paul was using about these, these other teachers. He said, they're just being silly. The, the word literally means old wives' stories. So they're just caught up in stories that don't really mean anything. He said, have nothing to do with them. And he has a strong foundation, again, because he was raised up in the truth, brought up in that. It's like when, you guys who all have, have families, when you, your baby is born, what do you do? You feed them healthy stuff. You don't just feed them, you know, the, the scraps from the, it's not like a little puppy, you know. You don't, well, I guess you should take care of your puppies too. But, but you know, it's, it's not like you just, you, whatever's laying around, you, you give your kid. You want to give them the stuff that's going to make them healthy, that's going to make them strong. You nourish them because as you nourish them, then they grow up healthy and strong. And that's what, what Timothy received from the time he was young. He was constantly being nourished in the faith. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, I'm reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois 
and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So it's a generational faith that he experienced. It wasn't just him. Now notice who's not listed on there. His dad. There's no dad listed there. Because remember, he was half Jewish and half Gentile. Chances are, Gentile dad didn't really want anything to do with this whole Christian thing. But he had a strong grandma and a strong mom, strong in their faith. And that's what he was nourished from. He grew up in that truth. Again, in 2 Timothy, Paul says to him, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What a blessing Timothy had. I got to tell you, the few things I enjoy more than sitting up front here with these kids and telling these stories, and when I ask questions, they answer the questions. And, you know, half the time when I try to tell the story, they'll be like, oh, I've heard this story before. Well, of course you've heard the story before because you've been nourished up in the faith because the parents in this congregation are doing a great job feeding their kids. Makes it a little bit tough for me to come up with a new story. Thank you very much. But these kids are getting what they need to hear so that they will have that solid foundation as they grow up. So what Paul is telling uh, Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, realize that you are a righteous teacher who needs to keep teaching your righteous teaching so that you, that you learn from righteous sources. You're a righteous teacher. Keep teaching your righteous teaching because you learned it from righteous sources in comparison or in contrast to those other guys who have been coming in. And all those other guys, they are bad teachers who are teaching their bad teaching that they learn from bad sources. So you have to protect yourself. Protect yourself. Make sure you continue to be that righteous teacher. Keep your life right, Timothy. Remember, he's a young guy. He's a single guy. And when you're young and you're single, and especially if you're in that place of authority and you're in a pagan society, there's a lot of opportunities out there for him not to stay righteous. And he's saying, Timothy, you've got to protect yourself and stay on that holy path. Later in this epistle, he says, but as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Flee that immorality. Flee those opportunities. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We focus on those things. When you focus on those things, then you will keep yourself righteous. So keep your life right, righteous teacher. Righteous teacher who's teaching righteous teachings will keep your teaching right. Make sure that you're um, uh, staying true to the gospel. Again, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ. What are these things? Everything that we've talked about up until now. All this protection of the true gospel. Hold on to that. Be the righteous teacher who is teaching the righteous teachings that you learn from righteous sources. Make sure that, you're, that what you're taking into yourself is nourishing, is healthy. Again, 1 Timothy 6, teach and urge these things. Talking about that doctrine again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So if you're hearing anything that's contrary to what you know to be true, leave him behind. And that's true for us too. There are no new doctrines that are going to come out. There's no fresh new revelation that you haven't heard already. Because this has been with us for 2,000 years at least. And there's been a lot of people who have poured through it already. And we pretty much know what it says. So if something newfangled comes along, chances are it's not coming from that source that we already know so well. So, his calling, teach the true gospel, you righteous teacher. What's the game plan? The game plan so that he stays on track, so he doesn't fall off. Well, the game plan is just train yourself. If you're going to teach truth, train yourself in the truth, and train yourself to stand strong in the truth. And he makes a comparison here between bodily training and spiritual training. He says bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So bodily training is great. Fantastic. But what bodily does is it will give you a better life on this earth. Spiritual training, on the other hand, gives you a better life on this earth and a better life after this life is over. So you get kind of the double whammy here. But it's not an either-or. It's more a matter of priorities. What's your primary focus? Well, I'm going to do this, but I have to make sure I every day do this. That I'm always training myself in godliness. Now, what is the ultimate truth that we're training for? What's that truth that we're holding on to? Jesus Christ is our Savior. Salvation comes from the one true God. Pure and simple. Not the myths, not the genealogies, not the old wives' tales. Stay away from all that. God is our Savior. And that's what he makes very clear again in verse 10. Let me do uh, 9 and 10. Well, no, let's get 9. 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope. What is that hope? That hope of salvation. That hope of eternity. Our hope is in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now this is a really easy, wonderful, comfortable passage until we get to this verse. And when we get to this verse, suddenly all the theologians and doctrinaires throw up their hands and they say, what is he talking about here? Because you have all these different interpretations. What does it mean that God is the Savior of all men? If God was the Savior of all men, then all men should be what? Saved. Exactly. But he's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Well, how does that balance out? Well, there's a number of different views to this. So, the first view is what we uh, kind of fell behind there, what we just talked about, and that's that universalist view. The universalist in interpretation says that God is the Savior of all people, so all people are saved. It says it right there. The Savior of all people, therefore all people must be saved. The problem is it renders the second half of that verse utterly irrelevant. 
right? If, if he's the Savior of all people, well, how can it be especially for anybody else? He's already the Savior for everybody. So it makes that irrelevant. Plus, we remember we have our hermeneutic of harmony. The hermeneutic of harmony says that, that uh, we always compare Scripture with Scripture. And if we find something that sounds a little bit off, we compare it with the rest of Scripture, and we see universalism is not backed up in Scripture. It's off. This has to be saying something else because other places in Scripture says that, that it's uh, uh, through belief. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved than that of Jesus Christ. So universalism doesn't, universalism doesn't fly with the rest of Scripture. Can we scratch that one out? Another view is what uh, would be considered the Arminian interpretation. Now, Arminian, what you have is really two, two sides of this great theological debate. You've got your Calvinists, and you've got your Arminians. And the Calvinists are mostly about uh, election, and Arminius are about free will. God chooses us, we choose God. So from the Arminian perspective, they say, well, what's being said here that God is the Savior of all people is that God wants to be the Savior of all people. But he is especially the Savior of those who believe. The problem is, that's not what the passage says. What does it say? God is the Savior. Not that he wants to be the Savior. So you can't go changing around words to fit your interpretation. So that, uh, that doesn't work in here. I mean, because in some sense, God is the Savior of all who believe. How does that work? Well, there's another interpretation. And this is coming from the other side, which would be considered more of the Reformed uh, perspective. And the Reformed perspective, uh, Reformed theology uh, is really based on Calvinism. And uh, uh, you find there, the basis of Calvinism is, is, you can use the acronym TULIP, the five points of Calvinism. T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints. Now, this verse fits under L, limited atonement. What this says is that Jesus Christ died for everybody as long as they're elect. He died for the elect. His, his uh, uh, work on the cross, the bloodshed, covers the sins of those who have been chosen by him. Therefore, he can be the savior of all people, but especially of those who believe. But again, that doesn't really fit. If he's the savior of all people, how does that fit into this whole idea of, of there's only certain people that are saved? Well, what they'll say is that uh, uh, he is the Savior of all people, but not in the eternal life, forgiveness of sins kind of salvation. Because Savior is used different ways. The word salvation is used different ways throughout Scripture. Salvation could mean protection from an enemy attack, or preservation, or physical healing. All those you can find in Scripture have the, that, that, that word salvation attached to them. And all those things are given not just to believers, but unbelievers. God's healing, his blessing comes on unbelievers and unbelievers. God makes 
the rain come on the good and the bad. And that's an idea that's called common grace. There's a common grace that's given to all people. Just, just by being people, by being part of his creation. He extends that common grace out so all people experience salvation in some way through common grace, God's protection, his blessing upon them. But he's especially the Savior in an eternal life sense of those who believe. Following? So common grace, Savior of all people, but especially Savior of those who believe in him. Problem with that is that's not the way Paul uses this word. Again, we have to go back to the hermeneutic of harmony. We have to go back to context, immediate context and wider context. Paul, in his letters, uses the word Savior 12 times. Just 12 times that word Savior come up. Ten of them are in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And arguably, every one of those times, all 12 times when he uses the word Savior, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal life salvation. He's not talking about preservation. He's not talking about common grace um, um, salvation for people. He's specifically talking about God giving his amazing grace to people, then receiving the mercy, the dead being made alive. So what is being talked about here? Well, the school that I would come from, or the belief I would come from, and, and first of all, let me just say, as far as the Reformed view, I think you will find probably a majority of theologians in that camp. A lot of people I respect very highly. And this is one of those things where I will say, I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be wrong, and I'd be willing to accept that I'm wrong, because again, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me who take a different view than I take. What I believe this is talking about is the idea of sufficiency versus efficacy. Sufficiency versus efficacy. Jesus' crucifixion is sufficient for all. It has the power to pay the price for all sins ever committed, but it's efficacious. It's put into effect for those who believe. So he is a savior of all because he died for the sins of all, but it takes special meaning for those who receive that gift of salvation. It's like having a wall plug. In a wall plug, you've got electricity there, right? All that electricity just waiting to be tapped into. Now, you can choose to tap into that or not. If you put the plug in, well, then you've got all the power to power up your blender. You don't plug it in. The electricity is all still there waiting to be used. And Jesus Christ, when he died, that power to forgive all sins was at that cross. But he's especially the Savior for those who say, Jesus, forgive my sin. And that's when we tap into that. John 1.29, John the Baptist sees uh, Jesus coming towards him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world, all the world, not just the elect, not just a certain group of people, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, 
of the world. 1 John 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. So he's saying he, his, his death was sufficient to take away our sins in the church, those of us who are believers, but it also, it also had the power to take away the sins of the whole world. The problem, the problem, again, I would say the view that I hold and the Reformed view are the two that I would say it, it's one of those two. The problem with the Reformed view that I find is that you've got to finagle. And you've got to finagle the words too much. You've got to say this word in this one case means something that it doesn't mean any place else in Paul's writing. And what I found is that in you know, a good uh, principle of interpretation of hermeneutics is if you don't have to finagle, don't finagle. Now, there are some passages where you got to finagle. So you finagle. But when the apparent meaning makes sense and fits Scripture and you can balance it in that hermeneutic of harmony, well, then don't finagle. Read it as it's written. And that's why I hold to this view of the sufficiency versus efficacy. What does it have to do with our salvation? Absolutely nothing. Okay? It's just one of those, <clears throat> those doctrinal arguments that's interesting to talk about, but it changes nothing about the gospel itself. It changes nothing about our role in spreading the gospel out and being righteous teachers who teach righteous teaching that we learn from righteous sources. But it was there, so we got to deal with it. Now, this brings us back to the whole practical so what of this passage. And that is, what are you doing to train? What are you doing to train? What is your training regimen? How are you preparing yourself each and every day to fight that battle? Because we are going to fight battles. And we saw last week, we talked about Satan. And Satan, his name means what? The adversary, right. It is a title. It's not just a name. Every time you find it in, in Hebrew, it is Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary. He is our enemy. So we're battling him and all his little minions. We're battling the flesh. We're battling the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, the sinful pride of life. Oh, we're battling our culture. We've got to prepare ourselves. We've got to be in training. What is your training regimen? And I will say there is no perfect training regimen. Or by perfect, I should say, there's no one-size-fits-all training regimen. How many of you guys remember Herschel Walker? He's again talking about the whole Vikings and Cowboys thing, just picked another scab off the wounds of my life. But uh, some of you understand what I'm saying. Some of you, yeah, exactly. But Herschel Walker has always just been this, this stud hero of mine. Because he's all about training body, but he's also about training spirit, too. But he has this training regimen that even in his 50s, even in his 50s, he does uh, 3,500 push-ups a day. He does 3,000 sit-ups, 1,500 pull-ups. And then he does other exercises throughout the day, too, up to 1,000 lunges. Can you imagine doing 1,000 lunges? I mean, in a day, I can't imagine doing 1,000 lunges in a lifetime. He does them every single 
day. But he developed this because he grew up in a home that couldn't afford weight. There was no opportunity for, for him to go to a gym, so he created his own regimen, and that worked for him throughout his entire career, both for football and then eventually MMA, and now just doing whatever he does now. There's no one-size-fits-all. 3,500 push-ups is not going to be part of my training regimen. But I figure something else out. But the same thing is true with spiritual regimens. What is it that you do? Now, the problem with quiet time, I'm talking about training each day, is that it's still, for a lot of people, just kind of ethereal. It's out there. Yes, I need to do a quiet time. Well, what's a quiet time? I know I should read and I should pray. Exactly right. Read and pray, that's good. But what does that look like? So I talked with a, a number of people, or I sent out a, an email to a few different folks and, and just asked them, what is your training regimen each day? I got back a few responses. Um, Tim Strasser, who was you know, banging on the bongos here early, uh, earlier uh, this morning, he, he says that he gets up early in the morning when his alarm goes off, and, and he doesn't even get out of bed. He reaches over, grabs his, his uh, Bible app, and he does his reading, and he prays while he's still just sitting there in bed. It's great, because you start off your day, you don't even get your foot out of bed, and you already have your training in where you're prepared for the day. Joyce Babb, she said that she does something very similar. While she's still in bed, she, she wakes up, she grabs her phone, and she reads her daily uh, reading from version. I'll talk about version in just a minute. And then after she reads, she just lays there and she thinks. And she processes what it is she's read. So she doesn't just read it and hop out, but then she just sits there and meditates on it. And then throughout the day, she keeps going back to it, thinking about it. She listens to Christian radio all day, so she's, she's training throughout the day too. Sheila asked her and... and uh, uh, she has the, the mighty trifecta here of Bible, Jesus calling Devo, and a cup of coffee. Those three things, I mean, you can take over the world with those three things. So she goes and she sits at her, what, at your kitchen table? Probably. Oh, so it's even more comfortable. That's awesome. She sits on the couch, feet propped up, and she's got her, her Bible, she's got her Devo. And uh, after she does her reading, then she takes time for praise and for prayer afterwards. And to talk with her about it afterwards, and, and uh, she'll tell you, I mean, it's, it's her quiet time that got her through the hard times in her life these last four, five years. That connection daily with God, because the enemy attacked day after day after day after day. The thing that kept her strong is daily going and training to prepare that day. Uh, Steve Musser, he sits down and picks up his Bible, and he picks up just where he left off. And he's very, uh, there's no set length of time, no set uh, a number of chapters he's going to read. He just starts reading his Bible from wherever he left off last time, and he reads it at half speed because he doesn't want to just through it. He just reads it slowly and kind of prayerfully, okay, God, what do you want me to, to learn from here? And something will stand out to him, and inevitably something will pop out, and then he just stops right there and thinks about that, or digs deeper, or processes through. So sometimes he'll read, you know, 
three, four, five chapters. Sometimes they'll read three, four, five verses. It just depends on when the Holy Spirit hits the brakes. And then after he spends that time reading, then he prays and, and uh, brings up the day again before the Lord. For me, I've got my, my reading plan that I've done for, I guess, probably six or seven years now. Where it's got nine chapters a day. If you ever wonder what all these little tags are that are in my Bible, this is, these are the chapters that I'm reading each day. So this helps me remember where I have to pick up each time. And uh, uh, it's helped me to just get this overview of Scripture, right? Know it backwards and forwards now because of putting in the time. When I started that, that training regimen, it was not easy. And I read stuff that I'm like, man, I, I don't even recognize this. And the second time I run through it, man, I don't even recognize this. And the fifth time I run through it again, man, I don't even recognize this. But then when you get to 10 or 15 or 20 times through, uh, it starts becoming familiar. And again, all that is is just a matter of daily Spending time reading. It's not that I've done any spectacular thing. It's just that I started back here, and by natural process, I've gotten up to here. But it's all about establishing the habit. Actually, before we get to establishing the habit, let me just touch on resources. For, for me, I, use, I do all my reading on my, my uh, iPad or on my phone, all my reading outside of my quiet time. My quiet time, I get my Bible. Because for me, it's just a lot easier because I do it with a pen, and then I just I write notes and I draw stupid little pictures. And, and by the way, don't feel, don't feel bad if you just write all over your Bible. This is a workbook. What's holy about this are the words contained inside of this. This right here is just paper and leather. So use it. Use it as a tool. When you come across something, it's like, oh my goodness, Holy Spirit, that's pretty awesome. I hadn't thought of that before. Jot it down there, write it down so the next time you come through there, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. So use this as your as your a tool for your quiet times. But I know more and more, just the ease and convenience of the phone and the uh, and the iPad, there's so many great apps out there to use. First one I talked about was Uversion. Uversion is probably the most popular one, and uh, probably really hard to see any of these that I'm going to put up there. Um, just so you know, you don't have to jot any of these down because in uh, on the app, the the church app, if you go to uh, sermon notes, I've got all of these listed out there. So uh, the U version it gives you a lot of reading plans, a lot of different versions of the Bible, and also there's a social media kind of uh, uh, element to it where you can. Go through reading plans with other people and, and discuss those uh, with them. Uh, another one, a new one, is Read Scripture. And Read Scripture has not just the Bible, but there's a lot of videos that they have. So when you get to a tough passage or a, a, a book that you've never read before in the Bible, you watch the video and it kind of gives you an overview. And they're really well done videos. So Read Scripture is a great one. Bible Gateway has a lot of different uh, uh, versions, has some other different tools in their commentaries and some things like that. Uh, Faith Life, Olive Tree, both have a lot of resources too. I know that uh, Olive Tree you have to pay for, um, but they have, I, I got an archaeological Bible on off of there, which is really a nice one. Um, and Faith Life Study Bible, got some good stuff in there. Uh, if you like to go free, Blue Letter Bible. Great app. Everything's free on there. 
Some of the, the resources are a little bit antiquated, but they're really, really solid. Um, Logos. If you really got a lot of money you want to throw out there, get Logos. My dad swears by Logos. It's what he's used for years. He was there as Logos was being created, and they kept you know, asking him for input as they're putting together this, this app. It's really a, a very good resource. But again, if you want to know what these resources are, go to the Strasbourg Community Church app, if you haven't downloaded it already. Download that, and you just go on that front page, and right over on the right side, you'll see sermon notes. They're there every week, and uh, uh, this week you'll find um, all these resources listed. There's one other thing that you'll find there, and that's an article. An article that uh, uh, I would walk through step by step if we have the time, but we don't have the time. Have the time, but it's called Seven Keys to Forming a Habit by a guy named Patrick Edblad. And uh, Edblad lays out probably the best, um, the best process I've seen for establishing a habit because really quiet time is about habit. I'll tell you how many times before I launched and finally got connected in with this reading uh, plan I have now, which like I said, it's probably about seven years ago, that would put me at 47 years old when I started that which means for 47 years, I was hit and miss all the time. Even when I was working in churches, when I was pastoring, it was hit and miss. I'd go on these great tears, and then I'd miss a day, and then I'd miss another day, and I'd start feeling lousy about myself. I was like, oh, man. And then it'd be a week or two, and finally I'd launch back in. It happens. But if we can develop a habit that becomes part of our lives, but that's when it just becomes so much more easy. So I'd encourage you... If you want to develop the habit, if you haven't developed one yet, of uh, 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 having your quiet time every day, um, you'll find a link on the sermon notes, uh, and just check it out. Oh, the first one, just the first one there says, um, got it written down here, start ridiculously small. I love this. Because for so often, it's like when we started some workout regimen. It's like, I'm going to work out for 45 minutes, and I'm just going to crush it here, and you do as heavy weights as you can, and by the next day, you're exhausted. It's like, oh, man, I don't feel like going to the gym today. That's how we are so often when we start the, uh, a Bible reading. and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to read the one-year Bible, and it's got two chapters, and it's got a psalm, and it's got a, a proverb, and you go through one day, two days, three days, four days, and then you miss a day, and it's like, oh, man. And then you miss another day. It's like, I don't have time to make up those two days, and plus do the next day's reading, and it all just falls apart. Start ridiculously small. I'm going to read a chapter. I'm going to read just a devotional today, and I'm going to pray for two minutes afterwards. I get it all done in five little five-minute chunks. Start with that. Praise the Lord. You got five minutes more than you would have had otherwise. And stay with that five minutes and do it day after day after day after day, and pretty soon it becomes a habit, and that's when you can start expanding it how you want. But start small just to get your feet in there. Start developing that habit, and then that's when it becomes, again, just a natural kind of thing. We have got to make sure that we train. We've got to be in the Word every day. We've got to be praying, because otherwise the world is going to squash us like a bug. Because we don't have the strength in ourselves to say no. But we know we've got the Holy Spirit there. And we have to take that time to tap in with him. To carry me through, guide me through, and start building up our spiritual muscles. 
So when the temptations come, the new doctrine comes, all those things, we can recognize it for what it is. We have the strength to say, no, I'm going to continue to be that righteous person, living my righteous life, teaching my righteous teaching that I have heard from the people that I trust, the gospel I know to be true because I read about it in the Word of God. Lord, help us to be strong in you. Not just strong in ourselves. Again, as we talk about training, as we train, it just gets us more connected to you. Otherwise, we're just trying to do it ourselves, and that'll never work. Keep us strong, Lord. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you that you are our Savior. And help us to take that truth and through our lives and through our words, help us to spread that truth around as we are your ambassadors in this world. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed the message. You'll find more messages online by clicking the sermons link at strasburgcommunitychurch.com. You can also take this and other messages with you on the go by downloading our mobile app, available at both Apple and Android app stores by simply searching for Strasburg Community Church. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook. If you live nearby or are ever in the area, we'd love to have you stop by and visit us sometime on a Sunday morning. Services happen every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. And we're located at 56155 Sunset Avenue in Strasburg, Colorado. Once again, thanks for listening. Be blessed and have a great day.